0: Welcome back to episode 47 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimminson, and with me is the Professor of uh, Public Policy at Griffith and uh, UWA, the great Peter Van Osselen, PVO. G'day, mate. How are you going? I'm going all right. It's getting a bit over these sort of weekends that look like weeks. Oh, God, tell me about it. I just
1: Can we just start? I don't know if uh, my neighbours are uh, listeners or not, or not, and I certainly don't know if you can hear the background noise or not, but... We've got one of our neighbors has seen fit in this time of lockdown to install a pool in their house. Which you know, at one level, you think, okay, fine, it's probably been in the pipe works for a while, but the pool has to be put where they've hit rock, and there's just this incessant drilling from a jackhammer, just endless. And I honestly feel like I'm about to, you know, carve out my my ears <laughs> In complete frustration you can't don't, shut the go, don't lose it, it on me it. yeah don't lose <laughs> it on me <laughs> it's just like and i haven't i mean obviously you know good luck to the builders that still have work frankly in the bigger picture of the the problem here and, and good luck that they're obviously well off enough to proceed with their pool but oh my god it's you know in the ordinary course of events this would be the perfect reason to get in my car and get to work asap um, but uh, you know, here I am, got the kids, my wife as well. It's just, it's uh, the the
0: perennial sound of a jackhammer. How,
1: how do the tradies do it? How do the guys that actually operate the thing
0: do it? Well, a lot of them have hearing loss. That's the reality of it. It's the sad truth yeah. of, uh, of it. And you still see tradies out without hearing protection on. And um, as my dad, who's gone profoundly deaf in his uh, in his old age, he's he's a sprightly ninety-one. But it's a terrible loss. So, so that's a, a small matter. Mm. I just have this image. You know, oh, the pools are closed. Sorry, <laughs> the beaches are closed. They've just reopened most of But the beaches are closed uh, in New South Wales. We'd better put that pool in the backyard. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure about cause and effect on that in terms of the timing. But I.
1: But 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 I tell you what. It, never have I been uh, more wishful that they hadn't hit rock. Uh, when putting yes. this bloody thing in, then when I started to hear the sound of the jackham. they are actually lovely people. That's the, the only reason that I'm I'm not uh, you know complaining more ferociously about it is because they're actually lovely
0: people. But oh god, you know they talk about testing one's patience. Anyway, there's bigger bigger things afoot. There are bigger things afoot. I do remember a time when you would wake up with a drilling sound in your head, and it was chiefly what you did the night before. But that was before lockdowns <laughs> yeah. and all the rest of it, and way off in my distant youth. Um, But look, the news is generally good. You know, the health out and about saying, look, what we're doing is working. The rate of increase in new infections has been less than 1% for seven days. For the first time in 81 days in Queensland, zero new cases in the last 24 hours as we record this and six Mm. new cases in New South Wales and a uh, a 94-year-old man adding to the uh, list of those lost to the disease. But um, uh, what are we doing so right? I mean... This is more promising than we thought we might be two or three weeks ago. Oh, absolutely, and it's great. You know, I mean, could you
1: ever be more happy uh, about some of the worst forecasts that we were getting in terms of you know the level of infection as well as the mortality rate being wrong than this? This is great. You know, but but it's cause and effect again uh, if we're talking about COVID nineteen because you know it was the head of New South Wales Health, the chief medical officer in New South Wales, she told us that one point six million people in new south wales would get infected in this first round unless obviously measures like this were taken which have avoided that and then when we looked around the world at the mortality rate the assumption was it could be as high as five or even six percent depending on if we had the thing under control or not but we're copying uh, that percentage mortality rate from south korea where it's at less than one percent which is great uh, but uh, that is because people are by and large doing the right thing and because the government by and large, has been on the money with doing the right thing and getting in, if not as early as some of us might have liked, certainly early enough you know, to avoid us replicating what we're watching in the United States. But that's also what baffles me, Hugh. I think we talked a little bit about this last time we chatted. It, it does amaze me that there are people that put this together and see how well we've done. And rather than just thinking that's great, they somehow try to say that that shows that it's all a bit unnecessary, the extent that everyone's gone on this. I I, I can't even fathom that kind of level of stupidity because you've got case studies around the world where they haven't acted as swiftly or as well as we have, where the thing's completely out of control. That could have been our fate, but thank
0: God it's not. Absolutely. One-third of all the known cases of coronavirus now are coming from the United States, and we presume there's massive undercounting at places like... uh, you know, across the African continent and so on. But uh, death toll of over 40,000 uh, in the United States. Those images of mass graves will sort of rest forever. But the pressure now goes on uh, increasingly. Uh, the, the two things concern you. One is that exactly the effect of talking about crisis, what crisis, let's get back to business. Uh, mm. And the other thing, which the point has been made, is that we're actually heading into still... Uh, our winter, which is yeah, you know, in flu terms, time. is when the infection rates for similar kinds of diseases steeply go up. So um, what's your sense of people about? On, on exactly that, I mean, I
1: saw some interesting commentary just the other day uh, about that, that you know the risks, I think it was Greg Hunt that, that I first heard on this, making the point uh, that as you enter the 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 winter, the flu season, those other ailments Uh, that you get well firstly that will complicate whether people do or don't have COVID and what impact does that have with testing and, and concern in workplaces and indeed in households but also the doubling up effect of it that you know this is one of the reasons why they want everyone to get their flu shots because if you get the flu you can apparently I didn't realize this also get COVID at the same time I actually thought that there was a separation there uh, from what I was originally being told when looking into this. But you can double up and weaken your immune system and and, and all the rest of it. So uh, there, there's all that side of it to be worried about. But absolutely, coming into the colder months, that's where this thing apparently thrives, um, whereas it, it finds it harder uh, to spread and survive uh, in, in the warmer climates. doesn't make it impossible, of course. And that's what the northern hemisphere are coming into in terms of their seasons whereas for us it's going the other way and and this is where it's all about you know staying vigilant it is a fascinating debate though isn't it you know this idea of do we start lifting the lockdown and if so where did you see that letter from those prominent economists that they've signed uh, imploring the government not to lift the lockdown on economic reasons because of the risks that they see attached to doing so i found that quite interesting it's a very short letter but with a long list of prominent economists who have signed it.
0: Yes, and we've and we've also we've talked about this before the small business lobby saying that it would be much more damaging to small business to to start to open up only to have to shut down again that that would be more destructive yes. uh, to this long-term survival rates meanwhile from the government you know they've mapped it out they've got the messaging clarified uh, there are three elements to get through here ramping up the testing the contact tracing element and this takes us back to that app uh, and mm. then the rapid response so if you found that you were in contact with someone who who had a coronavirus infection, then they can get you quickly and isolate you, test you yourself, and those who are in contact with you. The app, many MPs or a lum- number of MPs, uh, notably Barnaby Joyce, but he's not alone, have expressed their concerns about the app. And that they say they won't be doing it. Um, how did you, what, did you hear what Stuart Roberts said about Barnaby Joyce not wanting that app on his phone? I missed that moment.
1: Oh God, it was so funny. Uh, we oh no, that was didn't... a reference
0: to the suggestion that his uh, his own uh, <laughs> his own behaviours, <laughs> Tomcat behaviours, might be more easily traceable. I think was the suggestion.
1: Pretty pre- pretty much, and and he said, "Don't worry, me, I'm not. I don't want to know where you go and what you do." <laughs> Which it was for, for two people in the same government, albeit different political parties in coalition. It was actually, although not that different of political parties, of course, because Stuart LNP. Robbins from the amalgamated LNP up in Queensland. But it was a real slapdown. Actually, know, uh, yeah, not that Stuart Robert has got a clean bill of health when it comes to his wider performance—not not, not uh, his performance in those
0: respects. But uh, wow, anyway, it was it was one hell of a slapdown for Barnaby Joyce. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah get, get, getting a gag off your off your colleague. But you know, you've got uh, Stuart Robert has tasked with the business of convincing everybody, uh, and as you say, one of the more accident-prone, and in, in what's been a fairly accident-prone front bench uh, up until recent times. Um, tasked with the business of getting us to sign up to this app, which is, mm. we're told for the health minister, so critical to managing the further spread of the disease. Do you get a sense of where confidence levels are on us all signing up to a smartphone yeah.
1: app? <clears throat> well, I've done a U-turn personally on this because uh, initially my reaction was, and I tweeted it and I, del- I deleted it deliberately because I changed my view on it, not because I was trying to hide that I had a particular view, but I uh, I originally was like, no, no way, wouldn't even fathom it get lost. It's a violation of my civil liberties. Now, I still feel that way, but I, I'm, I've come around for, for a different logic here. Uh, basically, the realisation that we've, we've all given up so much of our civil liberties anyway, uh, compared to 10, 20 or 40 years ago, the technological age that we're in, the amount that we share on social media, you name it. You know, we're, The horse is bolted on that one, is, is kind of, if you like, my point. And, and keeping that in mind, I look at this app, and yes, there's safeguards there. I'd like to see bigger trade-offs. I'd like to see the government give a bit more back to be able to have it and you know and embrace corruption, oversight and all that kind of thing. But ultimately, uh, it's for the pandemic. There are safeguards there and it is optional. And this is what I think is the most interesting point. The fact that it's optional is actually in a way, now that I've done a U-turn on it, what I've got a bit of a problem with. Let me explain why. I, I understand that if it's compulsory, that's more likely to rile people. Uh, and create a backlash that the government would have to face. But here's my message. If it's so bloody important, deal with the backlash. Don't be so gutless in government because if they believe that this tracing app is as important as they say it is to be able to manage this crisis and to be able to help us come out the other side of it and do all good things to deal with it, then why be so gutless and make it a voluntary tracing app? Make it compulsory. And here's my context for that. In the early 1970s, governments had the guts to make wearing seatbelts compulsory. And why did they do that? Because of the crisis of the number of people in accidents who were dying because they didn't wear seatbelts. Now, that was nothing compared to this crisis and the value here. And that was also a, 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 a case of governments having the guts to be courageous and enforce a compulsory thing that we all now accept to protect oneself rather than others. This, they don't even have the courage to make it compulsory, to protect others through the tracing elements of it. So what is going on? Where is the courage in government? If not now, how gutless do you have to be?
0: Okay, so a couple of things on seatbelts. In fact, the death toll from car accidents, I think it peaked in the early 1970s, and it was exactly things like seatbelts compulsory, and then later on, uh, random breath testing, etc., cetera, helped yep. to bring down, and, and safer cars by and large. Um, and, and lower road speeds overall commuters tend to drive more slowly than they did in the early 70s. So, so that's, you know, the seatbelt argument is one thing. My concern with it is, is, that if you make it compulsory, for a start, there's an enormous number of people in Australia that tend to be the more vulnerable, who don't have smartphones, mm. to which you can attach the app anyway, this will tend to be the older ones, uh, those who don't have um, uh, money. And also, sometimes uh, you know, it's, it, it can be somewhat gendered. Where, but but you know, but just on that,
1: that, that's okay though. Like you can, you make when they made seatbelts compulsory in cars. You know, if you didn't own a car, you didn't have to wear a seatbelt. But you did if you got in somebody well, you else's
0: car. At the same amount of risk. But if you went into someone else's car, then then that applied. Uh, my concern with it is that people say, well, you know, I, I don't like having this made mandatory as an intrusion in my life, so I'm going to wander off and not take my phone. So it becomes counterproductive. And then what are you going to do? You're going to have police stopping people demanding to see their smartphones and see whether the app is installed and then charging them and fining them if they don't do it. I do think that there are rights against the state that, that, as you say, we've eroded an enormous amount. But Mm. uh, particularly when you see things like, uh, just take the example of the High Court deciding in recent days that the uh, going through the undies draw police raid of the journalist Annika Smethurst was actually illegal. The warrant wasn't legal. Um, so all of that activity by the Australian Federal Police were constantly assured, of course, police always act within the law and that everything is for our own good and for the good of the national security. And we know through seasoned experience that, A, it's often not within the law, and, B, that national security arguments are often completely bollocks. It, it comes from other purposes. So, But, so but, that- but, but on that, I, 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 agree.
1: I agree with most of what you're saying there, actually, but the, part of the reason that I did a U-turn on this is because this app, we're told, and, you know, you have to make sure the safeguards of what we're told are true, but we're told that the second the pandemic's over, it goes away. And they, and they get rid of it as well as all the information. I think the information goes every 21 days or something. But my, my point is either do it and do it compulsorily so that it actually achieves an outcome or don't do it because I, I don't think it's going to be effectively taken up as an optional thing and therefore wouldn't be as effective uh, as it otherwise might be. But I know what you're saying, Hugh. You. I mean, Australians, you know, don't like being told what to do. Having said that, we're one of the only countries in the world with compulsory voting. Uh, which we seem to have accepted. And the seatbelt, uh, I, I know that that's why the seatbelt compulsory wearing came in in the early 70s because of all of those issues around accidents and, and so on, but uh, that was still not a crisis of this proportion. So if governments then were prepared to do it in that crisis and have the courage to make it compulsory when people didn't like it, I mean, I remember uh, you know, my parents being incredibly anti it uh, and we were one of the first countries to move on it. Uh, but people accepted it because governments said it was important. Uh, This is a much bigger crisis, but government seem to have lost their ticker uh, when it comes to to doing something that's so important. And if it's not that important, I guess this is my point as well. If it's not that important, we're going to have to take a break in a minute, by the way, after my rant. If it's not that important, uh, then why do it at all, I guess, is my point. It's either important enough to do right uh, and you have to be courageous or why bother?
0: We'll take a quick break, TV. I'll be back in just a sec. Hi, this is Stu from Ten Speaks. While
1: you were shut in, staring at the wall, why not listen to some of our great Ten Speaks podcasts, or at least stare at our great TV shows on Ten? We have Short Black with Sandra Sully, Starstruck with Angela Bishop, The Professor and the Hack, Australian Survivor Talking Tribal. Man, we need some shows with some shorter titles.
0: Find these and the rest of our 10 Speak shows on the ACAST app or wherever you get your potties. Welcome back. Uh, to the Professor in the Heck with uh, PVO. In, uh, in fine-ranching style, uh, Professor. I've calmed so down, Hugh. I've but calmed down. The break, the break tr- served me well. Yeah, the uh, the drilling by the neighbour <laughs> with the uh, flash room. <laughs> got under your skin. Um, and I imagine that all that drilling and noise that you speak of uh, must have interrupted your concentration as you sat down to do your duty and read the uh, Malcolm Turnbull memoir. Um, to, to 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 read uh, my copyright
1: violated version or the proper version?
0: Well, did you get a
1: violated version? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> just just for, for the absolute record, no, just to be clear. <laughs> but, um, but isn't that fascinating? Yeah, hasn't it now been admitted um, and apologised by the staffer in the Prime Minister's office for having done this? So did, did well, I read well, that
0: correctly? So, so, so just just in case you haven't been following this, this is where uh, <laughs> we understand from out of the Prime Minister's office, and there is a named individual. There were uh, copies, electronic copies of the Turnbull. Um, Uh, memoir uh, sent around to it was initially being suggested millions of people in fact it's now being wound back to maybe just a few dozen uh but that they come out of the the pm's office why why didn't Uh, they why didn't they send it to me i mean i thought i got on so well with the prime minister's office i'm I'm flabbergasted bit of a freebie um but the publisher (laughs) is taking it deeply seriously and and it's worth the shadow attorney general saying look you couldn't walk into a store and steal a book off the shelves and walk out of the door and expect there to be no sanction so um, I don't know that this is something that, to be honest, resonates enormously in the in the living rooms and lounge rooms of Australia. But uh, at the same time, what, what is your, your view about, before we get on to the memoir itself, about the sort of posting around?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it's obviously um, wrong. It's against the law. It's a violation of copyright. And, and you know, particularly in, in what we do, and you've written, uh, you know, books, so have I, it, it it would be incredibly frustrating. I'm not sure that Malcolm Turnbull's concerned about the economic cost to him. I think he'd probably rather more people read it, uh, whether he got paid or not, but certainly the publishers understandably are because there is to, to make a buck. Uh, but it's, uh, look, I, I think it's fascinating that someone out of the Prime Minister's office has done this. A senior advisor too, we should say. So it's not just some junior burger in the office. It's, it is a senior advisor. Uh, but what do they think they were achieving? Because... Malcolm Turnbull doesn't have a problem uh, financially. We all know that. Um, what he, but, you know, and, and this book, this memoir, we know is quite critical from some of the excerpts we've seen of Scott Morrison. So what, a Scott Morrison staffer thinks he's doing his boss a service by making more eyes get to read this book earlier that basically shit cans his boss?
0: How does that work? Yes, unless it was possibly to uh, stir some sort of sense of in- indignant outrage on behalf of Scott Morrison's allies, so that if they were asked about it, they were able to uh, point to some sentences or passages of the book and say, look, this guy's outrageous or, or whatever. Just,
1: but, it is. But, Hugh, but Hugh, that just means that they're admitting that they've gotten a, a you know, the, the immediate question I'd be asking as an interviewer would be, well, how do you know that? Have you read it
0: yet? Have you got a copy? How did you get it? Off we go. <laughs> Yeah, look, I mean, it's true. Let's go to the substance of the book. He is a former mm. prime minister. He was taken down in uh, in what's now the uh, the usual killing season style. Um, uh, I've got no problem with these guys writing their books. They can be pretty painful to read sometimes. The uh, the level of anguish, understandable anguish um, from people who've lost their jobs. The, the, the Rudd uh, ones were painful to read, but there's still stuff that's instructive there about the process. Um, what, what have you made of what you've seen of it so far?
1: Yeah, uh, look, it's timing is everything. But I, I can understand from a, a sales perspective when people are cooped up and you know they've, they've got more time on their hands to read that this might be a, a that it might seem like an obvious time to therefore release it. But I actually think that that's wrong. Uh, you know, counterintuitively, I, I think a book of this style airing this sort of dirty laundry now in the middle of a pandemic, when most people actually are giving Scott Morrison a bit of praise. For having done quite well with his handling of the pandemic, I'm not sure that it cuts the right tone. If if you're Malcolm Turnbull, I guess yeah, I mean, but you to...
0: but you know about publishing and and the publishing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the sales and marketing element of publishing, if you get a contract for a book, they tend to kind of lock stuff in into their own calendars and, Mm, you know, and then they often time it around writers festivals and other sorts of things, or to try to hit them for father's day or the Christmas sales. They know where it's, where it's If I
1: was, I know you're absolutely right, but, and I think it was the Sydney writers festival right around now that was, that was in the hitting zone for this too. But uh, I, I, having said that Malcolm Turnbull knows how to throw his weight around, I'm surprised, genuinely surprised that he didn't make a judgment to hold it back. Bad luck publishers, you know, we're, we're varying this now uh, because I I can see why when he was sitting there putting the final touches on this around the failures of the bushfires by Scott Morrison, how he was thinking perfect. You know, this book really just sinks the boot in right when the guy's down and down for his own failures. Uh, But now it just doesn't, it looks bad. And we should say, by the way, I haven't read the book, but it's a big book. It's long. It's detailed. It's not just his prime ministerial years. So the media picks the eyes out of it. You know, 150,000 words. There'd be less than 5,000 words on this, you know, probably even half that. But that's the meaty stuff that gets pulled out. And Turnbull knows that. There'd be lots of other fascinating things in this book. And I actually do think that this one will break the mould because he's such a good writer. Uh, I think it'll be actually quite interesting, but we'll see if I'm right or wrong about that. But uh, timing-wise, I just I just don't think it looks good for him. I think he's got legitimate gripes, really legitimate gripes, by the way, about how much uh, Scott Morrison and his supporters certainly were doing behind the scenes, you know, backing Dutton just to damage Turnbull enough so that Morrison could come up the guts. He's got really legitimate gripes to, to air. But doing it now, yeah,
0: I think it rebounds on him. I really do. What do you think? Yeah, um, look, look, it, it, he'll... he'll catch whatever program comes from that i think the thing about it i've got to say i've, I've known uh slightly uh malcolm turnbull for nearly 30 years um mm. i met him when i was a reporter in london a long time ago before he was in politics uh he was always uh both uh impressive in an incredibly flashy way his intellect his curiosity his force of personality um you know he's if he's interested in what you've got to say you know people have said in features that his abiding uh element is his just intense curiosity, uh even mm. quite entertaining. Uh he has great charm. Uh he can also be a ruthless uh, bully as they all are. Uh and he can also and this is one of the problems I think for him in terms of building strong loyalty among uh, across the backbench is that if he finds people boring, he doesn't disguise his <laughs> he <finds> them boring around <laughs> right in him. and some people have, and some people who fancy <laughs> that they might be worth a bit more than that, you know, you could go away sort of <laughs> grumbling that they had an great man.
1: It is so true, Hugh. Like I mean, you've obviously had more to do with him uh, over a longer period than, than I have, but I've over a shorter period had quite a lot to to do with him in different with different hats on at different moments uh, in his life and mine. But he's I find him incredibly funny in the right moment, and you know, he is charming and and really good company uh, when he's in the right frame of mind and and when he's finding you interesting and when he's curious, as you say, and talking. But oh my God, it flips, doesn't it? Like no no one has given me in my life a better indication that they're bored with their conversation with me than Malcolm <laughs> Turnbull the, the old steel
0: shutters come down over the eyes it, don't they it, and the next thing you know so he's <laughs> for the phone
1: in, in almost every conversation that I have with him, because he's fascinating even when you think it's all going well you're having this great conversation and then all of a sudden he just, he's gone
0: yeah Look,
1: um, <laughs> I mean, he's, on just, his, he's on his phone you know he's looking at He's scrolling away, you know, no, no, no tracing app, but he's scrolling away. Well, maybe that's the thing
0: about how, you know, he has this intense curiosity, but the minute that he thinks it's, uh, that he's expended your capacity to feed it, then he's moved on. But, you know, I, I, you know I, what can I say? All leaders, I mean, a very senior figure in the Labour Party, he never got to leadership, but, it was, but a figure in there said, all leaders are slightly mad. Uh, and one of the things that struck me when I was thinking about this, you know, because he goes on about the ruthlessness of being torn down. Uh, the Dutton insurgency, uh, the people who were behind Dutton trying to drive that, the fact that Morrison was working his own thing uh, with his own supporter team running a double play. Uh, you know. So Morrison was rat cunning in the way that he came through the pack. He, he gives some credit in the book to Morrison. He felt that Morrison was his natural successor, the, the most uh, able and experienced um, mm-hmm. at the time that he went there. But then if you look back, I'm trying to think, Go back to Fraser was ruthless, ruthless against the government in office. So he tore down a, pri- a sitting prime minister. Then, then Hawke was part of tearing down Hayden. And then you can go through Keating tears down Hawke. You know, uh, Howard and Keating, uh, Howard and Peacock had that sort of uh, almost yep. Greek um, Shakespearean drama of trying to knock each other off all the way through the 1980s and everything. All these guys. If you look at the ones who basically were not brutal bastards, Kim Beasley, Brendan Nelson, probably John Hewson you know, who who achieved leadership. Um, Yep. uh, You know, Alexander Downer was briefly leader of the Liberal Party and then recognised he just wasn't the chop for it. Uh, So the ones who are not completely brutal... um, Well,
1: Peter Costello, I would add to that, even though he was never leader, because, you know, if he was just a little bit more brutal, he would have come after Howard in a very different way,
0: I think. And and would have done what Keating had done, and that is that he could have damaged... He could have done as Keating did and just simply chiselled away and damaged and damaged and damaged in small ways uh, in the way that Rudd did against Gillard as as uh, as Abbott did against Turnbull where you just calculate to just drag down someone and then and then you you're ready to kind of go in for the kill and and Costello I think to the good of the nation didn't do it and deserves mm. some credit for that some people in the political world think that he was gutless because he didn't have the ticker to go after him but what are you there for if you're there to, to make the country better sometimes there is something bigger than your own ego and ambition so um it is curious to hear Turnbull talk about ruthlessness when he went after Brendan Nelson. Um, he definitely, got but,
1: but you know out. what, the, you know what the issue there is. I think is that Malcolm Turnbull is a front stabber, whereas I think he feels like he was stabbed in the back by Scott Morrison. Now, Ma- Malcolm Turnbull, when Tony Abbott was prime minister, didn't hide his ambitions to take over, and he, you know, eventually. Got the gig, and you know, he took him out uh, the same way that he that Dutton tried to take Malcolm Turnbull out. But uh, Scott Morrison played a similar game back then to become treasurer. Wh- that he played this time when Dutton had to go against Turnbull to become prime minister, because he was with Turnbull to become treasurer, uh, and you know, knock out Joe Hockey, and and obviously as prime minister, knock out Tony Abbott but he was much more stealth-like. It was similar here. You know, he was in the treasurer's role. He was working perfectly functional with Malcolm Turnbull. But behind the scenes, whether it was with his direct authorization or whether it was his lieutenants working independently, clearly there were games going on. But, you know, welcome to politics is, is my point there. You know, it, it frustrates Malcolm Turnbull when it's happening against him, but he was comfortable uh, with that kind of strategic approach, uh, albeit for a different prize. By Scott Morrison when he became treasurer when they took out Tony Abbott and Joe Hockey,
0: So, so all of that is, is true. I, I agree with all of that. The, the, other, the other element in there, which I think is worth just pausing for a moment on, is that he, like Rudd before him, now out of office, has turned and used uh, the strongest language uh, against, uh, not quite as strong as Rudd's, against uh, Rupert Murdoch and the Murdoch press. Mm. Rudd famously called Rupert Murdoch a cancer on Australian democracy. I think it was or society, and and uh, and Turnbull's commentary is that he wasn't owned by Murdoch and the plutocracy, and so therefore was dragged down by them. But I've got to say, in two thousand and thirteen, March two thousand and thirteen, Labor was in office, and they Labor tried to rein in the media or put you know new standards upon. Uh, the media, etc. It it applied across the media. Plainly, was directed at Murdoch. And at that point, uh, Turnbull was active making the case for uh, there to be no further fetters put on the media, particularly uh, the Murdoch media. And it does peeve me just a little bit that he, he, there's nothing he knows now about Murdoch that he didn't know back in 2013. So this, <clears> is, this is to make a case one way or the other about Murdoch. People have their own views about that. But it just strikes me that you get out of office and then suddenly you can be vociferous against Murdoch. He could have, in 2013, as shadow communications minister, uh, have, if he felt Murdoch was such an appalling a player in Australian life, he could have done something about it. He could have taken the position. He played safe politics against the Labour Party and in favour of Murdoch. And it just seems a little hollow out of office to do as Rudd did and then just bang the hell out of yeah. um, Murdoch after, after the event. He, he can no longer do anything about it except for wins from the sides. He could have done something about it then if, if it mattered to him.
1: Yeah, see, I, I think Rudd had a more legitimate gripe with News Corp writ large than Turnbull had. Let me, let me explain why. I, I do, however, think, and I think I said this in our last podcast. I do think that there's some truth uh, in the frustration, and not just the Murdochs. I would I would widen this to, to all people of of significant wealth that they had towards someone like Turnbull, who was more of his own man because of his ability uh, to to look after himself financially to the extent that he can with his hundreds of millions. But I actually think he's an unguided missile uh, on the Murdochs in this case. I mean, disclaimer, I write a column for The Australian, not that that's got anything to do with my opinion on this, but uh, I think he's an unguided missile a little bit on this because the Telly and the Oz, vis-a-vis Peter Dutton, didn't, in my view at least, tear down Malcolm Turnbull. The Telly did a lot of reporting of the Dutton camp and the stirrings for leadership, but that ended up being right. They were obviously getting fed that by them. But I didn't particularly see The Oz and the Telly tearing down Malcolm Turnbull. They certainly weren't propping up Bill Shorten. And I didn't particularly see them egging on. In fact, quite the opposite. I didn't see them at all egging on, going over to someone like Dutton, certainly, or even a Scott Morrison. Uh, They they were critical of elements of what Malcolm Turnbull did, but that was partly because I think he's a smaller liberal. Stuff that I like, uh, some of the editorial lines in those papers being more conservative, didn't like. Where I think Turnbull had a legitimate gripe, a really legitimate gripe, um, but he's just extend, he's just um, you know, if you like, fanned it out wider than this. I think he had a legitimate gripe to say Sky News after dark is ridiculous towards me. You know, your Paul Burry's, your Alan Joneses, certainly your Andrew Bolts, your Peter Credlin's. If he'd contained his criticism to them, uh, and yes, you know, they're, they're within the News Corp family, but they were the ones that were going bananas at him. And by extension, I guess the likes of Jones on, on radio as well. I think Ray Hadley was was equally into him. They were the ones that were really going in. I don't think it was as wide a net as he casts. And because it was just Sky News After Dark, maybe they were copying the views
0: of the Murdochs, maybe they weren't. I I don't know. But I wonder how much influence Sky After Dark really has. You know, the numbers are pretty darn small. I think in regional areas they get a run out through one yeah, of the networks. And I think they, they, you know, they're a bit more visible, perhaps, in the regions. But uh, you know, I, I, you know, does does mainstream Australia really sit down and watch Sky well, after dark? No,
1: no, 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 it doesn't. That's, I mean, we're almost out of time here, but that is the fascinating thing, right? I, I think it. What frustrated him was that the problem with Sky News after dark is that Liberal Party members watch it, and they're, they're a very small club. You know, these political parties have got much smaller memberships than they used to. A large rump of the Liberal Party's membership particularly the conservative side of it, watch it, listen to Alan Jones, certainly, uh, and it fans out from there because that has an impact with what they then say to these MPs. So it doesn't have much broader influence in the public. There's no doubt about that. But it does in that particular cohort. And I, I think, that, anyway, we're, we're a bit off point. My point is more just that that's where he had a really legitimate gripe. I don't know that the conspiracy that it was some sort of, you know, news court-wide thing against him is, is accurate. I, I don't think it is.
0: Well, the thing about climate change, I know we are nearly out of time, but plainly, uh, as, as Turnbull himself says, his passion for there to be uh, genuine action on managing climate change was real and deeply felt. Uh, and at every turn where he could, he was pushing it as hard as he felt he could within the conference, certainly back in 2009, and then, mm. then, you know, then trying to get something through that had some relevance. Uh, in the late stages of his prime ministership. So uh, then there's no doubt that although Rupert Murdoch has now uh, publicly pronounced that there are no climate deniers within News Corp, that certainly wasn't the case when <laughs> Turnbull was. But again, uh, in that's office.
1: the guy after Dark Crew in particular, I think.
0: Oh, the so. newspapers, the Australian is, runs a very, very you know, skeptical line. Yeah, that's, line true. Yeah, that 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 that's the true. Barrier reef is <laughs> magnificent, there's no harm to anyone. And, and they've run that. And, That's true. And, but I think they were in favour
1: of the, uh, the, the energy guarantee. Um, I think they were. But then Turnbull was copying heat from his own conservative flank on it. Anyway, look, we can do a whole podcast on this probably, but I, I do just think that the really – I'm not saying he doesn't have legitimate gripes with the wider News Corp family, but I think where he has a really genuine gripe, gripe is with Sky After Dark. And it's a little bit like the timing of the book, you. if he he really focused there rather than a bit broader, I think he would be more effective because it'd be much harder to refute because it's so bloody obvious the way that Bolt, Credlin, Jones, Paul Murray, though they were just going after him night after night after night. It was just appalling, quite frankly, uh, as far as I'm concerned. But it was quite narrow. And then, yes, there was the odd gripe around that more broadly. But that was really where where there was a fat fatwa against Malcolm Turnbull.
0: Absolutely. And the only thing that you'd also draw from these memoirs, you look at Rudd, you look at uh, the Turnbull one, is it does, again, make you wonder why the hell anyone would do these important jobs because the, uh, the suffering <laughs> in terms of the mental health, you know, no, they're yeah. right. All they get torn aside. It's it's not for no reason. Those, uh, you know, the great Greek legends and Shakespeare still get read to this day. It's because they're all about basically blood and destruction. And a quick reminder, Hugh, um,
1: Julie Gillard, you know, this this is just another example of compared to all the blokes who are all still a little bit, rightly or wrongly, bitter and twisted about what happened. Boy, she rose above all of them in the aftermath of her prime ministership. She copped it more than anyone when she was there, I would argue. Yet, far less than all the others Uh, has she bitched and moaned? She hasn't she's risen uh, since leaving the Prime Ministership whereas a lot of these guys are continuing to fight old wars
0: Yes, yes, done it quietly well done her. Uh, PVO great to talk to you, stay well Uh, I hope the pool goes in and the neighbours invite you around Um, Yeah, I might go go and have a quick look at a social distance and see how it's going (laughs) I'll talk to you soon Take care (laughs) See ya You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.